description of Nibbana as found in the suttas. I would prefer to give a talk entitled A Description of Nibbana from Personal Experience, but this is what we're stuck with. So, if you remember back to two days ago, I mentioned in the Sutta Nipata, there was a very early version of dependent origination, Sutta Nipata 4.11, entitled Quarrels and Disputes. And that sutta says that quarrels and disputes arise based on finding things dear. And finding things dear arises based on things being desirable. And things that are desirable due to the pleasant and unpleasant aspect of sense contacts. And sense contacts arise because of, well, nama rupa. Nama rupa could be translated as name and form. You frequently see that. It could also be translated as mind and body, or mentality and materiality. But it could also be translated perhaps as subject and object. So which is the appropriate translation here? I don't know. Sorry. Uh, but the sutta definitely asks, the questioner in that sutta asks, how does form disappear? So if sense contacts arise based on name and form, maybe what we need to do is have form disappear. The reply is that, well, sanya, is different. Sanya, you might remember, is the Pali word for perception, except that Sanya doesn't always mean perception. Perception is our ability to name things. So you see Buddha and bowl, or maybe you see bell instead of bowl, whatever. But Sanya can also mean consciousness, could mean concept, uh, anyhow, I'll use consciousness. The Buddha's reply about the disappearance of form is that one's consciousness is not the ordinary kind. It's not abnormal. It hasn't ceased. And it's not wrong. Okay, got that? A little cryptic. But I think what we've got here is a very early description of, shall we say, the realization of Nibbana. Nibbana doesn't have ontological existence. It's a realization. Think about the edge of the world. I mean, you go down to the beach here in Santa Cruz, and you stand there ankle deep in the water, and you can see the edge of the world, right? Six miles out, ship gets too close to the edge of the world, goes over the edge of the world, disappears. Happens all too often. So sad, right? All those people die. <laughs> okay? And then they grab you, they stuff you, well, not in a space shell anymore, in, in a Soyuz capsule, blast you into orbit, you look down, you see it's circular, they explain gravity, you go back to Santa Cruz, you look out there, and... It looks just like it did before, but you don't conceive of the edge of the world, right? You stop conceiving. You've had a realization of gravity and the fact that the world is a sphere. Now, the non-existence of the edge of the world is not a thing. It doesn't have ontological existence. Although people really want Nibbana to have ontological existence, to be a thing, it doesn't seem that that's what the Buddha was talking about. Actually, you better hope Nibbana doesn't have ontological existence. It's said to be unchanging. And if you're like me, you don't find yourself in Nibbana right now. And if you're not in Nibbana, and you want to get there, and it doesn't ever change to have you in it, you're stuck on the outside. So you better hope that it's a realization or a, a way of understanding reality that removes some of the illusory nature.
like understanding reality that removes the illusory nature of the edge of the world. So there are some suttas that give us some hints of what this understanding is about. The most classic descriptions of Nibbana, the ones that teachers quote the most frequently, are found in the Udana, the Inspired Utterances. This is a book of 80 suttas, and there's a prose story followed by some verses in each of the 80 suttas. And sometimes the verses are related to what goes in the story, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes you're like scratching your head going, what does this have to do with that? But luckily, for the Nibbana stuff, there is some relationship. This is Udana 8.1. Thus have I heard, at one time, the Blessed One was staying near Savati in Jeta's Grove on a Dependicus Park. On that occasion, the Blessed One was instructing, rousing, inspiring, and gladdening the bhikkhus with the Dhamma talk connected with Nibbana. And those bhikkhus, being receptive and attentive and concentrating the whole mind, were intent on listening to the Dhamma. So there's your way to listen. Then on that occasion, the Blessed One uttered this inspired utterance. There is bhikkhus, that base where there, there is no earth, water, fire, or air. No realm of the infinity of space, no realm of the infinity of consciousness, no realm of the nothingness, no realm of neither perception or non-perception. Neither this world, nor another world, nor both. Neither sun, nor moon. Here, bhikkhus, I say there is no coming, no going, no staying, no decreasing, no increasing. Not fixed, not movable. It has no support. Just this is the end of dukkha. That's kind of cryptic, too. No four elements, no higher jhanas, no sun or moon, no coming, going, staying, moving, staying still. What we have here is a list of qualities that we give things. Some of them are opposites, such as staying still or moving. And the Buddha is saying Nibbana is not concerned with all that. If we look at Nama Rupa as subject and object, that's a very dualistic way of relating to the world. You might have heard about non-duality, a way of looking at the world without getting caught up in opposites, a way of not getting caught up in me as someone having the experience of an object out there. I think this is what this is referring to. Not entirely clear, but luckily there's more suttas. The Udana 8.2 that follows starts out with exactly the same prose. And then the divine utterance. The uninclined is hard to see. The truth is not easy to see. Craving is penetrated by one who knows. For one who sees, there is nothing. Or perhaps a little more accurately, for one who sees there is no thing. Okay, well, all right, if you get beyond subject and object, then you get beyond objects, things. Could this be what this is talking about? Whatever it is, it's uh, hard to see, not easy to see. Then we have Udana 8.3. The next sutta, exactly the same opening in the divine utterance. And this is Tanasaro Bhikkhu's translation. There is, monks, an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated. If there were not that unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated, there would not be the 
case that freedom from the born become made fabricated could be discerned. But precisely there is an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated freedom from the born become made fabricated is discerned. This is usually referred to as the description of Nibbana in the suttas. And here we have an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated. That's much better than the usual translation that you find. The usual translation that you find says there is the unborn, the unmade, the unbecome, the unconditioned. It's only like, what, eight words? And... <laughs> Well, only five of them are wrong. The first thing to realize, in Pali, there aren't any articles. No a, an, or the. When you hear about the unconditioned, it sounds like it's a thing. It's a place. When an enlightened person dies, then they get to go to the unconditioned. And Nibbana becomes just another type of heaven but it's harder to get there. Instead of just being good or believing in whatever, you got to get enlightened and then you get to go to the heaven. Well, that's not what the Buddha said. He didn't say the and he didn't say an. And he definitely didn't say unconditioned. Unconditioned is a translation of the Pali word asankata. Sankata is the past participle of sankhara. And sankhara, as I mentioned, means something that is created, manufactured, made. All right? So the bell is a sankhara. It was made. <coughs> the platform is a sankhara. You are a sankhara. The idea of truth is a sankhara. Beauty, love, these are all sankharas. They're created, they're made. They're fabricated, to use Tan Jeff's quite excellent translation. Or even better, they're concocted. That comes from Santikaro. So, better to translate this would be there is unborn, unbecome, unmade, unconcocted or unfabricated. The other thing is to realize that although these are past participles, in Pali, past participles often are much like gerunds in English. Gerunds are the things that end in ing. Doing, becoming, making, being born, fabricating, concocting. So I think what the Buddha is saying here, monks, there is not giving birth, not becoming, not making, not concocting. Because of this, there's liberation from being born, making, becoming, concocting. All right? Now, what does the world look like when it's not concocted, when it's not fabricated? And who is the concoctor? Hmm, might be me. What the Buddha is saying is that there's a way of looking at the world that's not the ordinary way, but a way that doesn't fabricate entities, doesn't make things out of what is perceived. Ooh. Perception that is not ordinary, not abnormal, not shut off, and not wrong. Okay, so now we're beginning to get a few hints about what the Buddha is talking about. The unconcocted view of reality. The view where we don't bust the holistic universe up into bits and pieces. 
the view where we don't bust the holistic universe up into me, the most important bit, and all the other pieces. This is what he's talking about when he talks about Nibbana. There's a really good sutta. This is also from the Udana. This is number 1.10. It's the Bahia Sutta. Thus have I heard. Once the Blessed One was living near Savati in Jeta's Grove, Anatapindikas Park. And at that time, Bahia of the Bark Cloth was living at Superparaka by the seashore. Now, Savati, Savati is sort of in the middle of northern India. So by the seashore is quite a long ways away. Now, this Bahia of the bark cloth was revered as a holy man. It says that he easily gained alms food, robes, I guess meaning bark cloth, lodgings, and medicine when ill. And then at some point, the thought passed through his mind. Am I an Arhant? Or at least on the way to becoming an Arhant? And then it says, a deva who had been a relative of Bahia's in a previous life, knowing the thought in the mind of Bahia, left the heavenly realm and came and appeared before Bahia and said, Bahia, you are not an arhat, and furthermore, you don't even know a path of practice that leads to arhatship. And so Bahia asked that deva, Well, where in this world are there arhats, and who teaches a path to arhatship? And that deva said, The Buddha, the Blessed One, the Fully Enlightened One, is living in a far country near the city of Savati, the Buddha is an arhat, and furthermore, he teaches a path to arhatship. In Bahia, as soon as that deva left, set his resting place in order and set out towards Savati. And along the way, he stopped for just one night in each place. He kept going day after day after day. And eventually, he arrived at Savati, at Jeta's Grove, Anatapindikas Park. And there he saw a number of monks doing walking meditation. And he went up to those monks and he said, Please, where is the Blessed One? We've come a long ways to learn the Dhamma from the Blessed One. And those monks said to Bahia, The Blessed One has gone into town on alms round. And straight away, Bahia left Jeta's Grove, Anatapindika's Park, and went into Savati, seeking the Blessed One. It wasn't long before he encountered the Buddha with a number of monks on alms round. He recognized the Buddha because his features were so clear, and he had such a peaceful demeanor. And he went straight away up to the Blessed One, and he threw himself at the Buddha's feet. And he said, teach me Dhamma, O Blessed One, teach me Dhamma, that it may be good for my good for a long time. And the Buddha said, Bahia, we have entered among the houses. This is not an appropriate time for me to teach you the Dhamma. You see, at that time, if you were a mendicant, a beggar, one who begged for your food, there was a certain time of day when it was good to go on begging rounds, the time when the people had made extra food to give to you. And so you would go begging at that time. But if you stopped to give a teaching along the way, uh, by the time you finished your teaching, there might not be any food, and there wouldn't be anybody looking for you to come along, and you'd go hungry. So you did not interrupt a mendicant on their alms round. Bahia replied, Teach me Dhamma, O Blessed One, teach me Dhamma, 
It is uncertain how long I will live. It is uncertain how long the Blessed One will live. Teach me Dhamma that it may be for my benefit. A second time, the Buddha said, It is not an appropriate time, Bahia. We have entered among the houses. And Bahia replied, Teach me Dhamma, O Blessed One. Teach me Dhamma. It is uncertain how long I will live. It is uncertain how long the Blessed One will live. Please teach me Dhamma that it may be for my benefit. Well, now, if you ask a Buddha something three times, he might answer you. The Blessed One has said to Bahia of the bark cloth, Bahia, in seeing, let there be only seeing. In hearing, only hearing. In sensing, only sensing. In cognizing, only cognizing. Bahia, when for you, in seeing, there's just seeing, hearing, just hearing, sensing, just sensing, cognizing, just cognizing. Then there's no you in that. And there's no you in this. And there's no you in between. Just this is the end of dukkha. From this brief teaching of the Buddha, the asavas fell away from Bahia of the bark cloth and he was immediately liberated. Oh, it worked better for Bahia, I guess. <laughs> so now, the question arises, how did the Buddha know what teaching to give to Bahia that was so effective? I mean, instant enlightenment. Wow. Okay, so Bahia of the bark cloth. Here's a guy that showed up dressed as a tree, right? <laughs> He's wearing bark cloth. The commentaries tell us that Bahia was a shipwrecked sailor and he was washed ashore and naked. And so he got some tree bark to cover himself and people thought he was a holy man and they began giving him food and clothing, well, more bark cloth, I guess, and a place to live, and medicine if he was ill, and he had a pretty good gig going. And that's why he was Bahia of the bark cloth, living at Superparaka by the seashore. The commentaries, bless their little hearts, have no clue <laughs> at all. <laughs> Bahia of the bark cloth was wearing bark cloth because he was a follower of and I'm going to probably mispronounce this, the Brihad Aranyakar Upanishad. The Upanishads were earlier spiritual teachings in India. And one of the earliest, if not the earliest, is the Brihad Aranyakar Upanishad. And it makes a big deal about trees. And so, by wearing bark cloth clothing, this holy man, Bahia, was basically dressed as a follower of the Brihad Aranyakar Upanishad. Just like today, you would recognize someone with a shaved head and wearing an ochre robe as a follower of the Buddha. And so this guy dressed as a tree shows up and the Buddha goes, ah, follower of the Brihad Aranyakar Upanishad. Now this is important because one of the teachings in there, one of the practices you're to undertake is in seeing there is the unseen seer. In hearing there's the unheard hearer. In sensing there's the unsensed sensor. In cognizing there's the uncognized cognizer. This is yourself. This is your soul. This is your Atman. So here's this guy laying at the Buddha's feet. And the Buddha knows exactly what practice he's been doing. Because he's dressed in a way that says, Hey, I'm a serious Brihadaranyakar Upanishad follower. And the Buddha says to him, In seeing, it's just seeing. 
And hearing, it's just hearing. And sensing, it's just sensing. And cognizing, it's just cognizing. Basically, ain't no self to be found there. When you can, when seeing, just see. And hearing, just hear. And sensing, just sense. And cognizing, just cognizing. There's no self to be found in what you see or in you. And the same for the other. Just this is the end of dukkha. And Bahia woke up. The Buddha was a genius. Right? He knew the guy's practice and he took one of the practices he knew this guy knew and he tweaked it just enough so the guy woke up. And the Buddha and the monks continued on alms round. When they finished their alms round, they left the city of Savati and begin walking back towards Jaitus Grove Anatapindika's Park, the monastery. And along the way, they came across poor Bahia. You see, he had been killed by a cow with calf. It seems at the time of the Buddha, this was, well, sort of like the drunk drivers of today. You didn't get killed by a drunk driver. You were just walking along and you walked between a cow and her calf and you got killed by the cow. And that's what happened to poor Bahia. Upon seeing him, the Buddha said, Monks, this is your brother in the Dhamma. Take Bahia of the bark cloth, put his body on a litter, carry it away, burn it, and build a stupa for it. And so the monks that were with him got a litter, carried his body away, built a funeral pyre, did the cremation, and built a stupa for it. And when they had done so, they came back to the Buddha, and they said, We have done as you said. We have cremated him and built a stupa. What is Bahia's destination? What has become of him? The Buddha said, Bahia of the bark cloth was a wise man. He practiced according to Dhamma and did not trouble me by disputing about Dhamma. Bhikkhus, Bahia of the bark cloth has attained final Nibbana. And then, on realizing the significance, the Lord uttered this inspired utterance. Where neither water nor yet earth nor fire nor air gain a foothold, there gleam no stars, no sun sheds light. There shines no moon. Yet there no darkness reigns. When a sage has come to know this for themselves, through their own wisdom, then that one is freed from form and freed from formless, freed from rupa and freed from arupa, freed from pleasure and freed from pain, freed from sukha, and freed from dukkha. Okay, this is another description of Nibbana, somewhat like what we had before. What the Buddha is really saying here, if you do the practice of in seeing, let there be just seeing, hearing, just hearing, sensing, just sensing, cognizing, just cognizing. What you find is, well, there's neither water, nor earth, nor fire, nor air. They don't gain a foothold. You don't conceive of what is seen in terms of solidity, or liquidity, or heat, or cold, or fire, or, or air, or movement. Right? You don't make these categorizations. You don't get caught in these dualities. When you're doing that, there shines no moon, there gleam no stars, no sun sheds light. You're not caught up in the duality of light and darkness, of stars, of sun, or moon. Or earth, remember, you got beyond that one. And yet, there's no darkness. 
reign. There no darkness reigns. So you've gone beyond the duality of light and dark. When a sage has come to know this for themselves with their own wisdom, then that one is freed from form and formless, from sukha and dukkha. There's no getting caught in the dualities of the world. When we do the craving and clinging that the Buddha points out in dependent origination leads to dukkha, we're definitely in dualities. There's me and I want it. I'm craving it. And there's me and I've got it and it's mine. Right? This is duality. Me and the things I'm craving, me and the things I'm clinging to. If you can get beyond the dualities, the thinking of what's inside is me and what's outside is mine, then there's not going to be the craving and clinging. And since dukkha depends upon there being craving and clinging for it to arise, there's freedom if you can get beyond these dualities. And according to what he told Bahia of the bark cloth, the path there consists of in seeing, just see. Don't see things. Just open up your attention and there'll be colored shapes there. Just leave it at that. If some naming happens, realize that it's conventional. Is this a bell or a bowl? Come on, which is it? Actually, it's a Hellman. <laughs> right? Go downstairs and look at one of those tables you eat off of. Is it really a table? Or is it a picnic shelter for leprechauns? <laughs> right? Everything is conventional. The conventions are definitely useful at times. If this is your begging bowl, it's very useful to distinguish between the food and the fingers, right? You don't want to eat the fingers. But it's conventional. The idea is to use the conventions when it's useful and to take a more ultimate view of reality in order to escape dukkha. The relative world, actually the phrase that Nagarjuna used when describing it wasn't relative. He says there are truths that don't fully reveal. So in other words, there's a way of looking at the world that doesn't fully reveal what's going on. At times, we have to operate from that perspective. If you're operating from the absolute perspective and you go to cross the street and you see a bus that's coming and you say it's empty, you're going to wind up dead. You've got to pick the proper perspective. Is this concave or convex? Those are opposites. Can't be both, right? Well, it depends on your perspective. If you look at it like this, it's concave. If you look at it like this, it's convex. If you're going to put soup in it, you better pick this perspective, right? Not going to work to put soup in it like this. It would appear that full awakening is the ability to pick the proper perspective. The Buddha didn't need his fingers. He put on his robe in the morning, right? And yet, he didn't crave and cling, and he didn't experience any more dukkha. When you're interacting with the things of the world, if there's a temptation to crave and cling, can you step back and see the things that you're craving and clinging, not as things out there that I've got to have? That's the relative perspective but just part of the holistic unfolding of the universe.
Remember I said there weren't any nouns? It was just all verbs, some of which were moving kind of slow. From the most ultimate perspective that I've been able to look from, there's only one verb, unfolding. That's all that's happening. We could say the universe is unfolding, but the phrase the universe actually isn't necessary. There's just unfolding. What we want to do is reify things, make them solid, real, sources of happiness. Okay? The problem is, all these reified things are subject to entropy, are subject to anicca and dukkha, because they don't have any real solidity to them. Let's say you go to the beach. This time you're not worried about the edge of the world. You got a little kid with you and you're gonna make a sandcastle and you make a really great sandcastle, right? You know, turrets and drawbridge and it's really cool. And then a big wave comes along and wipes it out. Are you upset? The little kid might be crying, right? But you understand the nature of sandcastles. In fact, part of the cool stuff is you build one knowing it's eventually going to get wiped out by a wave. You understand that it's a Nietzsche. You don't think, oh, cool sandcastle. Let's take it home in the trunk of the car. We'll put it on the dining room table. I mean, it doesn't occur to you. You understand about the impermanent nature of sandcastles. Got news for you people, it's all sandcastles. <laughs> it's all just streams of dependently originated phenomena coming together. And you grab hold of it, and you put it in the trunk of your car and it's going to fall apart. Or something like that. There's another sutta that I like for a number of reasons. This is number 11 in the Long Discourses, the Vata Sutta. Thus have I heard, once the Buddha was living near Nalanda, and at that time Kevata, a layman from Nalanda, came to the Buddha and said, Venerable Sir, you should send some of your monks into Nalanda to do some miracles. That'll really impress the people and you'll get lots of alms food and really cool robes and all this sort of stuff. And the Buddha says, this is not how we do things here. Furthermore, it won't work. There are only three miracles. One miracle is the ability to being one become many, being many become one, becoming invisible and reappearing walking on water, diving into the earth, passing through walls and ramparts unimpeded, flying through the air cross-legged like a bird, stroking the sun and moon, wielding mastery as far as the Brahma realm. But if the monks go in and do that sort of stuff, people will say, oh, they just got a Gandharan charm, because everybody knows a Gandharan charm allows you to do all these sort of things, and people won't be that impressed. So that won't work. Another miracle is knowing the minds of others. But I'm sure you know about the Matika charm. If you have the Matika charm, then it's very easy to know the minds of others. And so if the monks go in there and they start demonstrating they can do mind reading, people will say, oh, they've just got a Matika charm and they won't be impressed. There's only one miracle that really counts. The miracle of instruction. And what is the miracle of instruction? Here, someone hears the Dhamma, gains faith, goes forth, practices the precepts, guards the senses, is mindful of their activities, is content with little, abandons the hindrances, progresses through the four jhanas, uses their concentrated mind to gain insight into the nature of reality, 
and overcomes the intoxicants. And in overcoming the intoxicants of sense desire becoming an ignorance, they become completely liberated and it's the end of dukkha. That's the real miracle. And then the sutta just abruptly changes. And the Buddha says, Kevata, once there was a monk who wanted to know where the four elements cease without remainder. And that monk entered into such a deep state of concentration that he was able to go to the lowest of the heavens. And when he got there, he went up to the devas that lived there, and he said to them, Excuse me, can you tell me where earth, water, fire, and air cease without remainder? And those devas said, uh, We're just lowly devas on the first level of heaven. No, we don't know stuff like that. We're, we're actually the servants of the four great kings. But if you go up to the four great kings and you ask them, Maybe they can tell you. So that monk increased his concentration, went to the four great kings, asked them where the four elements cease without remainder, and the four great kings said, we don't know, maybe you should ask the guys in the heaven above. And so that monk increased his concentration, and he went up to those devas, and he asked them, where do the four elements cease without remainder? And they said, we don't know, maybe you should, you get the picture. Up through the heavens he went, higher and higher, always getting the same answer. We don't know, ask the guys upstairs. Finally, that monk reaches the retinue of Brahma. These are the guys that wait on the creator of the universe. Surely they will know something like that. And he goes up to the devas of the retinue of Brahma and he says to them, excuse me, where do the four elements cease without remainder? And they said to him, We don't know. You should ask Brahma. He knows everything. Well, where can I find Brahma? We don't know, but if you're patient, he'll show up here. Well, when's he come? Well, no one knows when Brahma will come. Well, how will I know when he's here? Oh, you'll know. There'll be a bright light lots of sweet-smelling smoke, and he'll announce himself. And so that monk went off, sat in the corner, and meditated, and before too long, there was a bright light and the sweet smell of incense, and Brahma appeared. And he announced in a loud voice, I am Brahma, great Brahma, creator of the universe, Lord of all. I know everything and I see everything. And that monk went right up to him and said, Excuse me, where do the four elements cease without remainder? And great Brahma said, I am Brahma, great Brahma, creator of the universe, Lord of all. I know everything and I see everything. And that monk said, You already said that. I didn't ask you that. Where do the four elements cease without remainder? And the great Brahma said, I am Brahma, great Brahma, creator of the universe, Lord of all. I know everything and I see everything. The monk said, you already said that. Come on, where do the four elements cease without remainder? And Brahma took that monk by the arm, led him aside, and he said, I don't know where the four elements cease without remainder. These guys think I know everything, but I don't know. By the looks of you, you're a follower of the Buddha. Go ask him. He'll probably know. And so as quickly as a strong man could extend his arm or draw it back, that monk disappeared from the Brahma realm and reappeared on earth. And he came to the Buddha, and he saluted the Buddha, and he sat down to one side. And he said, Venerable Sir, where do the four elements cease without remainder? And the Buddha said, you silly monk, you've been as far as the Brahma realms looking for the answer and you couldn't find it. You should have come to me in the first place. But you should not ask your question in this way. Where do the four great elements cease without remainder? Instead, this is how the question should have been put. Where do earth, water, fire, and air no footing find? 
Where are long and short, small and great, fair and foul? Where are Nama and Rupa wholly destroyed? And the answer is, where consciousness is signless, limitless, and all-illuminating. That's where earth, water, fire, and air find no footing. There, both long and short, small and great, fair and foul, there, nama and rupa are wholly destroyed. With the cessation of consciousness, this is all destroyed. Still a little cryptic, right? So, the monk wants to know where the four elements cease without remainder, and the Buddha says the question is wrong. It doesn't make sense. But it's possible to find no footing for them, no conceiving of them. And it's the same place where long and short, small and great, fair and foul, nama and rupa, it says, are wholly destroyed. I think the translation might be more accurate if it says completely cease, right? The busting the universe up into bits and pieces of solidity, liquids, gases, energy, long, short, fair, foul, how, high, low, body and mind, subject and object. That's what you're looking for. And it happens with consciousness that is signless, limitless, and all-illuminating. Consciousness that is signless. If your consciousness is signless, that means there are no distinguishing features that you would perceive. Now that's a not an ordinary consciousness, an ordinary way of perceiving. It's not abnormal, and certainly it's not turned off, and it's not false. It's that space when in the seeing there's just seeing, in hearing there's just hearing, in sensing there's just sensing, in cognizing just cognizing. When you do that, there's no signs, no this or that, me or mine, I want, or anything like that. And there's no limitations. There's no boundaries. There's just the seeing. And it's all illuminating. Nothing is hidden away. It's all there to be seen, because in seeing, there is just seeing. That's where earth, water, fire, and air no footing fine. That's where long and short, small and great, fair and foul, that's where nama and rupa, subject and object, mind and body, wholly come to an end. And then this last sentence was very cryptic for a long time. With the cessation of consciousness, all of this comes to an end. Huh? Does this mean you're supposed to go oblivious? Does this mean if you're in deep, dreamless sleep, you're in Nibbana? Well, that seems rather useless. I mean, you're supposed to go completely unconscious and stay there, and then there's no more dukkha? Well, I'm not following a path that takes me there. That, that's, that's nihilism to give it its real name. So I couldn't make sense of this, the cessation of consciousness until somebody pointed out to me, John Peacock, pointed out that consciousness is the word vinyana. And the V means divided and jnana means knowing. With the cessation of divided knowing. All of this comes to an end. 
Don't go around chopping the world up into bits and pieces. See the world as a seamless whole when that's the proper perspective for what you're doing. When you're on retreat, yeah, when you're practicing, can you perceive the world as this holistic unfolding? That's all that's really going on. Can you see that the things, the thinginess of the world, is something we impose on it? It's the stories we make up. Just like the Buddha said yesterday in the talk that Gil gave. Stop telling yourself stories and see what's actually happening. I've been using that as a mantra now for a number of years. It's a great thing when I'm sitting there meditating and I got this story about how I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And then I go, stop telling yourself stories and see what's actually happening or recognize what's actually happening. There's seeing it and hearing it and sensing it and cognizing it. So this is the best I can do to uh, give you what I found in the suttas that points out what Nibbana is supposed to look like. It's not a place. It's not an ontologically existent thing. It's a realization. It's a realization that, well, we could say there's nothing but streams of dependently originated phenomena interacting. That there's just holistic unfolding happening. That there's no me and there's no you and there's no this and there's no that and there's no high and low, long and short, fair and foul. There's no subject and there's no object. And one set of instructions for getting there is to really pay attention to what sensing is like. And in seeing, let there be just seeing. Hearing, just hearing. Sensing, just sensing. Cognizing, just cognizing. But do look both ways before you cross the street. Maybe we could sit quietly for a moment or two.